And so, Acts chapter 9, creeping up on the Gentiles, we have had a series of monumental conversions in the book of Acts. We had Samaritans baptized into Christ. Who knew? Uh, after that, the massive conversion of, uh, well, I mean, I'm sorry, right, right after that too, was the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch opening a door into Africa itself, praise God. And after that, Saul, who is going to be God's conduit to, to make a massive difference in the name of Christ. And then we're about to have Cornelius in chapter 10. But before that happens, after these kind of Mount Everest, Mount Everest, Mount Everest events in the book of Acts, it's, it's kind of like a reframe. And we pick up on Peter and we see Peter now in a couple small, small towns of, of little renown with, with a couple smaller events here in the book of Acts. A, a young girl that is, that is raised to life, a, a, a man that, that has been lame for eight years, being able to be healed. And yes, I think if, if we were part of that, we'd be like, ah, this is the coolest thing I ever saw with my own two eyes. But interestingly, in comparison to the, these mountain peaks that we've just had, this is a, a bit of a, a departure. And we'll, we'll discuss why that is and why it is that Luke brings all of this into play. So we, we go from Paul having regained his strength and gone back and growing stronger and stronger. And then we kind of have a, a cut scene here in verse 32. And let's begin to read. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. Uh, Lydda was also called Lod in the Old Testament. It was uh, very close. It, today, by the way, has anybody ever flown into Israel from, from the U.S. for any reason? Um, okay. Well, the airport, the airport that you fly into near Tel Aviv, uh, Ben-Gurion Airport, is smack dab in Lydda. So the next time you fly into that airport, you'll be like, ah, oh, isn't this where Aeneas was raised to, uh, to be able to walk again? Uh, but anyway, th this is where we're at in, in Lydda. Now, there are some significant Old Testament considerations that are in view here, and I'll bring them into play. Uh, there he found a man, Peter did, named Aeneas. Now, Aeneas is not an... Uh, it is actually quite a popular name at this time. Jew, Gentile, Hellenistic Jew, like Greek-speaking Jew. Uh, it would have been a common name overall uh, because of the Aeneid, the, the, the famous poem. Uh, which is about Aeneas. And so, it, again, it would not have been an odd name. It would have been a very common name. Uh, and it doesn't mean that this guy was a Greek or a Gentile. He was, for sure, a, a Jewish Christian, uh, since he's in a, a Jewish Christian community at this point. And because the big deal is going to be made in just a moment about the first Gentile to come into the faith, it, it is also very, very much the case that this man is, is likely not a Gentile. Anyway, there he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Uh, that's, a, that's a sweet moment, of course. And as he, as he says this, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, roll up your mat. He, he could also be saying that the phrase there uh, is this idea of, Prepare your spot, in a sense. It could even mean prepare this place for a meal. 
uh, as though that he's now going to be kind of active in service and active in significance and being able to, to give back as well. But, but either way, people are of, of um, equal consideration in this area. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and in, in the plain of Sharon, uh, in Sharon, saw him and turned to the Lord. Uh, now, this is, this is interesting because this was a stronghold that had not been conquered, as will be the next spot, Joppa, uh, where there's a disciple named Tabitha. And likewise, in this stronghold that are right next to each other, there are Christian communities. Where do they come about? Well, they probably came about from Philip. Because Philip made his way down uh, to meet the Ethiopian eunuch on the Gaza Strip. And then as he made his way up through those towns, uh, Ashdod and and, uh, even up through this area, ultimately on his way to Caesarea, he would have gone through these towns. And as he went through those towns, he would have continued to preach and would have made such a beautiful, massive difference here. And so he established communities all along the way as he traveled Wow, right? I mean, who, who wouldn't want to have that kind of a life of that kind of an impact for something so magnificent as the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, there's something bigger going on here and that we've got to always keep in mind because it's very easy to get just involved in the beautiful stories, each of which are great deliverance, but there's a big picture at play. God overall has a design in mind to be able to take the blessing to Abraham. Genesis 12, we read it last year. We studied it as a church in Genesis. I love that we're combining these things. But it was to Abraham that through you, you will be blessed and you will be the blessing to all nations. And that ultimately all people will be blessed. When does he say that to Abraham? Right after the Tower of Babel dispersion of all 70 nations. All 70 nations are, are, are sent out because they had no longer a regard for God, but rather a self-important conceit and a regard for themselves. Let's make our name great. Let's do great things in our name was the sentiment at the Tower of Babel. And God in his grief then sent out those nations. But what's interesting is when he sent out those nations, he also, in a sense, according to Deuteronomy 32, subjugated them to these like evil powers, these, these evil sovereignties that would have had sway, would have held sway over those nations. And so when we later on come to Gentiles coming back into the, in, into the fold or into a covenant or into a unity with the Jews, the Jews didn't just despise the Gentiles because they look different or their genetics were a bit different in terms of their ethnicity. Uh, I guess just their ethnicity, rather. Probably their genetics were probably no different. But, but, but because that was, that was different there, they, um, they, they not only despised the Gentiles because of their traditions and the towns in which they live, but they despised them because they were under the dominion of these... The, the, these heavenly forces that were in opposition to the one true God, to the one great God, the most high God, Yahweh. Uh, this is more of a theme than we appreciate through the Old Covenant. We'll talk about it more, especially as we get into the Gentiles. 
But for a Jew to be open-minded to that at all, wow, that's a big deal. Now, God is going to bring in all the nations. That's what Acts chapter 2 was about. That's what the Holy Spirit being able to speak in the languages of all those nations. That's what it was to have all the nations gathered back together again in Acts chapter 2 as the gospel is proclaimed for the first time. God is showing that his plan of reclaiming all peoples of earth is really coming together. But he says first it's going to be in Jerusalem and Judea. We're still in this area, Jerusalem and Judea right now. And and he is going to make sure that all of his precious possession understands that, that yes, Yahweh has dominion over you. Now, when there was the conquest of this land, right? When Israel first came into the land, they, they were given the conquest. And under Joshua, they whomped and stomped and took out the Canaanites. And each of the tribes, the 12 tribes, had their respective areas. Benjamin was right there up just north of, of Judah. Judah was down through this area. But then just south of the area of Judah, or, or just east, west rather, west of the area of Judah, don't worry about all that, there, but there was this land that was apportioned to a tribe called Dan. And Dan was supposed to do their part to, to really show the power of God and conquer this land. This land included Lydda and Joppa. And the Bible tells us that in, in Joshua 19, that while the seventh lot came out for the tribe of Dan, the territory of their inheritance, which included uh, all, all of these areas, including like Ashkelon, and, but, but also all of the area facing Joppa, it says in verse 46. When the territory of the Danites was lost to them, they left there. And then they went up north and resettled in another spot. And so this remained a bit of an embarrassment for the great plan of God. That this land never really kind of came into the fold. It became the land of the Philistines. It became even a, a land of, of, of kind of the giants as well. And, and it was always a, a land that was evil and powerful and a thorn in the side of Israel. And what God is doing right here before sending the gospel into the Gentiles, he's showing that for the last little bit of Israel, where you always had this insecurity, Israel about never really claiming the land, let me just quickly and easily, through the gospel of my suffering servant, enter into those lands and absolutely assert my dominion. That I have dominion over death and I have dominion over disease. And I will turn the hearts of my people in those lands back to me so that they'll be ready for the further conquest all in the name of Christ. Uh, so for, for a Jew experiencing this, and it's only Jews experiencing the gospel right now, for the Jews experiencing this and seeing the name of the Messiah, the promised plan of God, start to actually conquer these areas, this would have meant quite a bit to them. So to us, it's just a story of a, of a girl named Dorcas and a guy named Aeneas. She probably prefers Tabitha. You probably would too. Um, it's just a story of a girl named Tabitha and a guy named Aeneas. But to a Jew, no, there's a lot more going on here. It's the final pieces of the puzzle, the final integrity of Judah and Israel being clearly affirmed in, in God 
And then the gospel is going to make its way over into the Gentiles. All right. Let me keep reading. Um, In Joppa, verse 36, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. I tried to say it as nice as I could. Just comes out that way. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became ill and died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. Yeah, 10, 12 miles, right? So it's about a, a three and a half hour walk. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the window, all the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. The verb there of showing is a middle voice in the original language, which has the idea of showing from themselves. And so it might have been that all of the widows that had been so benefited by the uh, beneficent work of Tabitha uh, wanted eagerly to let Peter know this is a special girl right here. Uh, please, please, please take and just look at the, the fruit of her love uh, and how giving she's been to all of us as we now come before you to show what it is that she's done to, in some way, lighten the burden of our lives. And, and so they, they did do that um, before him. Uh, P, uh, Peter, verse 40, sent them out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. By the way, the, the word get up here is kuam. So what he said to her was, after having put everybody out of the room, being in this upper room with the, do- with the, the, the younger woman, maybe she's young, uh, with, with Tabitha herself, uh, is he says, Tabitha, kuam. Maybe that sounds like something to you. It's, as he says, Tabitha Kum, it is just one consonant away of what Jesus said when he healed Jairus' daughter. Likewise, he put the people out of the room, except for uh, his, his closest disciples and, and the mom and dad, put everybody out of the room, and then came over Jairus' daughter, and instead of saying, Tabithakum, he says, Talithakum. Talitha means young girl. Tabitha means gazelle. It's a pretty name uh, that, that, that she is a, a Tabithakum and Talithakum. So again, it has a real echo of, of Peter imitating his master. And for Peter too, to have been in the room when that happened with Jesus, to now have an experience so similar to that must have been so precious for Peter himself. Peter sent them all out of the room, got down on his knees and prayed, turning toward the dead woman. He said to Tabitha Kuhm or or, Tabitha get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows and presented her to them alive. By the way, the word here for believers, and, and it's used earlier, in the 
Uh, in many other translations, they'll use the word saints, or more probably with greater integrity of the original language, hagioi is holy ones. And again, there's a lot of big spiritual battle stuff going on. You don't have the word holy ones, hagioi, used that often in the book of Acts. Here it is. And, and one of the reasons is, is that the plan of God had always been that while in his realm, in the, in the heavenly realms, he, re, he, he reigns among the holy ones. God's plan was always to replicate that on earth and that he would reign among his holy ones. Even Revelation tells us that God will come down and be with us. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And the holy ones, the holy ones will reign with him. I think there is a specific mention of the holy ones here in Lydda and in Joppa to reinforce the idea that in the great cosmic supernatural battle of bringing all people into a wonderful alignment, loving relationship with God, where God would allow them as kind of co-regents almost with him to, to have dominion over the new heaven and the new earth, then it would be the holy ones who have that, that he is identifying as a precursor, holy ones, even here in this territory, this territory of Lydda, this territory of Joppa, these strongholds that seem to never be able to assert their, their dominance against the, the, uh, the, the evil forces. Now he's recognizing, no, I have established it here. All right. And then lastly, um, uh, then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. And I'm sure the widows must have just been beside themselves. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. People stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. And that will lead us into the next story for, for next week. Uh, I've got two points this morning. The first is... Stay in the game. You don't know what God's going to do. And really, you can't force it yourself. But when you are in play, and God has you in play, He gets to use you as a vessel. He gets to allow you to be one that collides with other collisions in the multiple iterations of all of our free will decisions in this world and life, and that with you in play, you get to be used by God to have someone bump into a disruption of their life that ultimately sets them on an amazing course. Now, Peter in play here, of course, has this going on, but when you're in play, it also, as has been, I think, any of our experiences, prepared us for even more astounding stuff that would occur. So, for example, Peter here, he is in play, not just for Aeneas and not just for Tabitha, but this is quite clearly preparing him for something even more astounding. Gentiles. It's not even in his, you know, potentiality mindset here. Gentiles. No way. But look at, look at the way that, that he's being prepared. He's in two very Gentile cities right now. He ends up in Joppa, uh, a city that is much more Gentile even than Lydda is. And he's staying at the house 
of Simon the Tanner. A tanner is, is someone who's perpetually killing animals and obviously uh, re- refining their hides. It's, it's a smelly, awful job in, in the ancient Palestine. Uh, but it's also rendering Simon the Tanner perpetually unclean, according to the Torah, according to the Old Covenant. Peter, being a, a rather scrupulous Jew at, at this point, would have actually probably had a bit of trouble being able to be open-minded enough, even in his new Jesus is Lord worldview, uh, even though uh, the, 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 the kind of Torah no longer saves you, but rather faith in Christ, but still old habits die hard. And in order for him to actually cross the threshold of a perpetually unclean Jew, would have been very difficult for him, especially in the midst of a very Gentile town. But there he ends up at the house of Simon the Tanner. Uh, likewise, to have, to have been making these amazing miracles with very Greek-speaking Jews uh, in these areas of Lydda and, and Joppa are, are all great little events in his life, but they're preparing him for something so much, much more. Stay in play. Stay in play. You don't know what it is that God wants to do for you. There's little things that you can do, I think, to stay in play. One of them is, if you're going to have a quiet time, why not have the quiet time in a more public spot? And if you're going to read your Bible, why not read a Bible that people can tell is a Bible? (laughs) Things just happen. And the molecule collisions that end up bumping into other molecules and other molecules and, and other souls. We don't know how it's going to all work out. Of course, we're minuscule in our, our perspective on this. But why not be easily used by God? The more that you try to lead some sort of a cloistered, secluded life, uh, rather than being in play for God, it, it really does limit you from even greater stuff that might happen. One of the kind of my favorite memories of God kind of bumping me into one thing, then another, then another, um, was a time when when Deb and I were out in Charlottesville and we were in the the Charlottesville church there. Uh, One of the things that the church had had a longstanding tradition on, and we continued, was an all-night prayer right on the grounds of UVA. And so off we were going, and rather than just praying privately, we decided we're going to pray right there on the grounds. And it was, it was terrific. We were there with all of the students, and uh, things, were, things were rather amazing. Uh, I, I realized last night, because it was, uh, they're in children's ministry right now, the Hutchins are. Hearst's aren't. They're in South Beach. Um, but but Paul, uh, Paul was in the church there as well. Matter of fact, they're the ones who met Deb and helped her become a Christian. But, but I also realized that Paul was 28 years old then. Right, I know, right? Like, how can that even be? But nonetheless, I digress, but it's fun. Uh, so, but the fact that we're not just kind of having a, a secluded prayer life, but, but here we are kind of praying and praying in play. Uh, as, as we were praying and, and as we were walking along, I happened to notice on the kind of the, the rotunda area there at, at the head of the lawn, the great lawn there at, at UVA, a, a pretty big gathering. And I thought, ooh, then, then the Holy Spirit, you know, starts like kind of nudging you. And I was like, oh, I got to go over and see. 
And uh, so, so the, the rest kind of went over to the spot where they were praying. And, and, and I walked over. And, and there there was, right there, a, um, a, a pretty big gathering. I mean, a really big gathering. And it sounded pretty raucous. And I, and I didn't know what it was. And I realized once I got there, oh, this is different from what I thought. It was a gathering of, of, of more than 100 or so to watch a tradition that goes on at UVA where the, the frats get naked and challenge themselves to run all the way down to the other end of the lawn and back naked because it's Virginia. So uh, I'm there and, and this is going on. And I'm like, oh. I didn't know what I was getting into, but I had kind of agreed with the prompting of the Holy Spirit that I'll go ahead and try to, try to you know, in, in a sense, reach all these people. And I had already walked down, like, in front, and they're all up on these steps watching this go on right, right over there. And they're, and they're all down there, and I'm like, I'm like oh! But, but again, none of this was like, oh, I'm going to go there and do this. And no, none of this ever happens that way. It's just God allowing you to be somebody who bumps into things. And, and I, I begin to kind of try to, try to preach to them in, in this crowd. And again, this is like late at night. This is like 11 at night. Who knows what state everybody's in. Some are in a state of undress, by the way. Uh, but, and I'm trying not to look there. It's just guys, but you know, still not good. Right? And, and, um, and, and I begin, but... I remember the, 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 the experience that I'll never forget is in that moment while everybody is kind of heckling me, the moment that I said Jesus, the whole crowd changed. And it, it, when I asked if, if anyone here had a, had, a, had a real respect or even reverence for Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And, and how all of a sudden, yeah, the, the, I mean, everything stopped at that point. And I realized, whoa. But I remember like thinking like almost with goosebumps, like, holy smokes. Like, this is the power of, of Christ. And to, and to be able to, to continue to preach and, and have a good bit of time to be able to do that. After a while, uh, the, the more fraternal element there. Uh, and, and this was me, by the way. And I was sharing all of this. I mean, this was my life in college. I was the worst instigator of all of this absolute, you know, stupid shenanigans and fraternity hijinks and tomfoolery. I didn't go to school in the 30s, by the way, although it sounds like it from what I'm saying. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, I, I could empathize with what you think is so heroic is the most empty, futile way of life you could ever begin to imagine. But, but anyway, even as, as they began to lose interest, there was still a big enough crowd there that, that I then got to ask, are, are any of you making an actual effort to follow Jesus? Is it your intention to either be Christian or to, to head down? And, and there was a group then that, that kind of raised their hands. And that's why I was like, okay, now I'm talking to you. And, and by the way, since this is what you claim... I'm going prophet now. Like, what in the world? How dare you? Like, if, if you're really going to bear the name of Christ and then sully that name, and, and then we got to talk. But again, it, it was a kind of a moment in my life where I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm like, 
like in nosebleed territory. Like, I don't, how long can this go on? This is kind of crazy. But it never would have happened if we weren't just kind of deciding, let's like really live out our faith and, and be more public. Let's get out. Let's go out. Let's go pray. Let's be in, in, in amidst things. Uh, and again, you've, you've all had this experience. We've all had this experience of just being out and about sharing our faith, asking people about Christ, asking people about their relationship with him. If we do that, you don't know what you're being bumped into and you don't know what's next. For Peter, all of this was intentional preparation by God for what's next. Because Peter needed to have a creeping up on the Gentiles receptivity and he was going to have to drop some of his traditional scrupulosity for the law that would keep him from ever even considering going into a Gentile's house. He needed to actually bump into a bunch more Gentiles in Lydia and Joppa. He needed to end up in Joppa out of Tanner's house where there was uncleanness going on. He needed to be in play so that God could be able to help him evolve to be in radical play of living his life with, with reckless abandon, trusting in God in greater ways than he'd ever known before. How about you? Why not be in play? Why not, as we go through the book of Acts, allow your conscience to be informed by God's people, not just simply become more pharisaical. You know, to be pharisaical is to understand the word of God all the better and do nothing about it. Jesus himself is the one that says is that the, the one who builds his house on the rock is the one who hears my words and puts them into practice. Then no matter what storms may come, what, what uh, terrors may arrive, you will be able to stand firm because building on the rock means hearing the word and putting it into practice. And you're built truly on Jesus. Now you can claim to be built on Jesus, he says also in Matthew 7, but that's where you hear his words and you do not put them into practice. That's like the unwise man who builds his house on the sand. As soon as troubles come, Jesus says, there will be a crash and it will be a great, devastating and complete crash when that occurs. So my goodness, for any of us to be people that continue to hear and don't put it into practice, that's a frightening proposition. That's like another layer of callous around the heart. That's another embrace of Phariseeism. And it's also a, 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 a fooling ourselves of thinking, wow, look at all that I'm doing here. Look at all that I'm learning. But it's all on sand. Please, every one of us as we're here, let's not be counterfeit in our Christianity. But, but really, let's really, truly build on the rock. Put into practice what it is that the Holy Spirit brings our way here. Stay in the game. Because as you stay in the game, you don't know what's next. You don't know what God might be bumping you into because then the, the next door that you walk through as you just got bumped over just might be something that will be one of the most precious memories in all your life. Uh, just as Peter was having them here and ha he'll have it in an even greater fashion when he bumps into Cornelius. Please, keep bumping into people. Stay in play. See what it is that God has in store for you and see what it is that God has in store for you beyond that. Because of who it is and what you'll know and what you'll be able to share, how you'll be refined for, from all of these experiences. A, a couch-bound Christianity will know none of this and will we'll actually will not even know Christ. Stay in the game, but secondly, be in the room. For Peter, 
to have been in the room in Mark chapter 5 when Jesus healed Jairus' daughter must have been a, a great, great honor in his life. Jesus was told by the people around him that Jairus' daughter is already dead. Matter of fact, they said that to they said that to Jairus. Stop bothering Jesus. Your daughter's dead. Jesus said to Jairus, Don't don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of even their ridicule. Just believe. And as the crowds mocked him and laughed at him, he still persevered, went up into that upper room, found Jairus' daughter, and he allowed Peter, James, and John to come up in there with him. There was commotion there. Uh, there were probably you know, professional whalers that often attend to such events of mourning. Uh, that's especially the women who know how to do the... Like, I mean, that's literally what, what, what uh, most people think when they say there was a commotion with crying and wa- uh, loud wailing. Um, I, had a, I had a woman at the Wailing Wall teach me how to do that once, and I've, I've forgotten, but I was good at the moment. Uh, so Jesus comes in, Peter's in tow, and Jesus says, what's with all the loud wailing? She's going to be all right. And he was met with, Scorn, mockery, and laughter from all that were in there. So he, of course, then said, you're not going to be in the room. But Peter got to stay in the room. And he went in and said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up, began to walk around. At this, Peter was completely astonished. Mark chapter 5 says, but there's something more that's, that's going on here, too, that ha- has happened often in a prophet's life. When you think about Elijah in 1 Kings 17, when he, when he heals the widow's son, goes up into the upper room, puts everybody out of the room, and closes the door behind him, and then prays three times over the boy, and sees him resuscitated to life. By the way, these are not resurrections. These are resuscitations. These people will eventually die again. And and at the eventual uh, resurrection, yes, that's what's going to really matter. These are just amazing events for the moment uh, because God is wanting to make a a real statement. But it's not just raising to new life where where these statements are made. But but I love even in 2 Kings chapter 4 where Elisha confronts a widow whose husband was a prophet and now her two boys are about to be taken off into servitude, into bondage. Imagine that grief. You're grieving your husband and your two boys, maybe like eight, nine years old, are about to be ripped away from you and, and head into a, 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 um, a, bond, a bond servant um, slavery. And Elisha is, is able to say to her, go get jars from everybody. And take the little bit of oil that you have and start pouring it into those jars. And it's going to provide everything that you need. And so her boys and she, and they go and they get all the jars they can. And then I love what Elisha says. After you get them all there, go into your house and shut the door. And be in the room. And then when you do, you'll see the work of the Lord. And just begin pouring. 
And imagine the mother, tears flowing probably as briskly as the oil, knowing that this was going to be the deliverance of her sons. And this deliverance was courtesy of Yahweh, Most High God. And, and as she's pouring, as he, she would say to, to her son, bring me another one. And she'd pour and it would fill up. Bring me another one. And the son would bring it over and pour and it would fill up. And all of this is, is money that's going to deliver them out of bondage. But they were in the room when it happened. Somebody was in the room with you when it happened. And they have never forgotten it. Somebody was in the room when the light bulb of cosmic significance went off over your head. When there was radical repentance, when you finally allowed a fear of the Lord to sweep through you, bring you to a gorgeous place of surrender, that you would no longer live for yourselves, but truly live for Christ who died for you and was raised again. When all of that came into eye-popping clarity, synthesis, significance, when you got it completely, and whether you realized it or not, those of us who were in the room with you when that happened had to go and take our jaw and lift it yet again because it never gets old. To be in the room when the Holy Spirit reproves, convicts, exposes, inspires, and brings you to that beautiful place of, of metanoia repentance, of a completely different mindset, a worldview that is Busting up in a, in a counterintuitive, countercultural way, the way that you've always thought. This is no small thing. It happens very rarely in any person's life. But to have that kind of a paradigmatic shift is re- re- just astounding for you, for sure. But for those as well that get to be there. Be in the room. Be in the room. Are there Bible studies going on in, in your Bible talk or amongst people that you know? My goodness, be in the room so that you can see the work of the Holy Spirit. It's so clear. That, I mean, all we do is with, with someone that's trying to figure out life in God, we just kind of read these words to them. We read these words to them and then we step back in the room and just watch the Holy Spirit make a massive difference. We're a blessed people to be able to have that. It's, it's why it says that anyone, John the Baptist is greater than any of the prophets that came before him, than anyone born of woman. But then it says of us, us, that in the kingdom, we're, even the least is greater than John the Baptist. Like we get to have this in the room experience again and again and again. What is it that brings you more gratification in life than that? What makes you more astounded? Somebody was asking me this past week while we were up there because we were doing a lot of teaching. And they said, is this what really gets you going is, is being able to teach? And I, and I said, no. 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 You know what? There's nothing better than being in the room. I thank God for every time that I stumble into the room. Or hear of, 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 of something that's going to be going on where, where someone is seeking God and the Holy Spirit through the scriptures are applied to their lives. And that we have the potentiality there of all of that exploding into new life. I know for a bunch of us who, who, who were in the room with Justin just recently. 
I mean, again and again, we kind of all like looked at each, you know, because you know you don't want to be too obvious, like ah, oh, that's awesome, right? But, but you know, kind of looking at each other, like, did you hear what he just said? Like, oh my goodness, like the Holy Spirit has changed him. Do you see the degree that he is absolutely surrendered? That he's not trying to hold on. He's not trying to have his cake and eat it too. He's not trying to just go after improvement, but actually a full reclamation. You know, you know, we're, we're trying to like convey that to one another with our eyes, but we're also like, this is awesome. <laughs> and, um, but it's, it's one dot among all these dots in here. Uh, and among all the dots that, that we're bumping into as well. Let, let, let me encourage you with, with, with all that you've got as we close this thing out and get ready for the Gentiles. Um, live out the Christianity that God wants to bless you with. There are wonders to be had. We're not meant to live lives, as Thoreau said, of quiet desperation. That's not our lot, praise God. Everyone is born with an inherent desire to have a battle to fight, an adventure to live, the distress to rescue. Right? That's a, a, an eldritch concept from Wild at Heart. But we've all got that. But we don't know how to express it. We don't know the manifestation of it. Unless we have a kingdom view. Unless we're in Christ. But if you're in Christ and you're not in the battle in the adventure, in the rescue, then I would, I would put it to you, then you're probably not yet in the game. Please, get in the game. Know the thrill of all thrills of being used by God. And then not only that, get in the room. And even more than that, know the thrill of thrills of seeing God at work among us. Amen.